My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. And each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody them and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage each and every one of you to tune into this online broadcast. Ways that you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page, like our Facebook page. You can listen to this broadcast and make comments underneath on the social media outlets you listen to. And you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night. I'm at my home office and I believe that Shrey and Jake are in their homes as well. It's Thursday night at 830. And this will be also replayed as part of our Sunday morning broadcast, Sunday at 10 o'clock. So you get this live tonight at 8.30 every Thursday night. We're coming together to broadcast and give a live and better understanding of the material that we are covering. So let's just call this a deeper dive into Exodus. Because if you've been following us online, you will remember that we are in the book of Exodus in the last two weeks we have covered some important uh, ideas, and those are important episodes for you to listen to, to go back into our library and pick those up and try to uh, take those in this week, talking about deconstruction and reconstruction. So deconstruction and reconstruction, moving through the pathway of, let's say, finding a fresh faith again. So last week, we introduced the book of Exodus, and today we are talking through the first section of Exodus chapter 1 through 225. So today, I'll just introduce my guests. They are Sherea Bodner and Pastor Jake Flug. Uh, those are two leaders of my leaders at Resonate. And so good evening, Sherea and Jake. I'm so glad that you're with us uh, today tonight. Hey. Hello. Good evening. So let's do a quick sound check because we had some technical issues right before we started. And so are we good with sound and good with video so far? So yes. Okay. Awesome. All right. So the first thing that we're going to do tonight, we're going to spend, well, let me just introduce, we're going to spend about 45 minutes together, hopefully. Um, sometimes we get to talking and so, uh, so it could go a little longer. But I'm hoping that these evening discussions, uh, maybe the kids are in bed, maybe they're still jumping around, who knows. But uh, these evening sessions are going to be a little informal. Uh, I might have to tell my kids to be quiet or whatever. And Sherry might have to let the dog out. So, uh, so and Oliver might be climbing all over Jake, who knows. But uh, we're going to get through it and, and we're going to have a good time during these during these episodes. So Jake is going to read the entire section of Exodus 1 through 25. So if you have a Bible or device, you can pull that open on your computer or device on your phone. Uh, there's the Bible app, which you can download. We do not sponsor necessarily the Bible app, and they do not give us money of any kind to do these broadcasts. So you can just download that. It's a free app for your phone, the Bible app. And so download that and follow along Exodus 1 through 225. 1 moment. Okay. I need to clean some things up. I'm sorry. I am not. Here it is. It reads, these are the names of the Israelites who came to Egypt with Jacob, along with their households, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's family was 70. Jacob was already in Egypt. Eventually, Joseph, his brothers, and everyone in this generation had died. But the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. Now a king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. 
he said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. And if a war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. As a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build store cities named Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread, so much that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. So the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work, and forcing them and by forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. The king of Egypt spoke to the two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see a baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. Now the two midwives respected God, so they didn't do obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave another order, gave an order to all of his people, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews in the Nile River, but you can let all the girls live. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was still was healthy and beautiful. So she hid him for three months. And when she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood and watched and stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the, in the river while her women servants walked along beside her in the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed, yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. After the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I pulled him out of the water. One day after Moses became an adult, he went out among his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew with one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there. Then he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. He said, Moses said to the one who started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, who made you boss and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid when he realized they obviously know what I did. When Pharaoh heard about it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses ran away from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian. One day, Moses, Moses was sitting by a well. Now there was a Midian priest who had seven daughters. The daughters came to draw water and fill their troughs so that their flock could drink. But some shepherds came along and rudely chased them away. Moses got up and rescued the women and gave their flock water to drink. When they went back home to their father, Raoul, he asked, how were you able to come back home so soon today? And they replied, an Egyptian man rescued us from a bunch of shepherds. Afterward, he even helped us draw water and let it drink the flock drink. Raoul said to his daughters, so where is he? Why did you lead this man? 
invite him to eat a meal with us. Most agreed to come and live with the man who gave him his daughter, Zephora, to Moses as his wife. She gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom because he said, I've been an immigrant living in a foreign land. A long time passed, and the Egyptian king died. The Israelites were still groaning because of their hard work. They cried out, and their cry to be rescued from the hard work rose up to God, and God heard their cry of grief. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked at the Israelites, and God understood. Thanks, Jake, for reading that for us tonight. So I think it's just important to read that whole section because we're going to be covering just block by block, walking through and discovering some interesting ideas and, and topics that can be pulled out of that whole story. But before we get started on that, I want to uh, just bring up, this is a topic that these two don't know I'm going to bring up right now, which I just want to just bring up impromptu and just uh, try to flesh it out a little bit. <clears throat> there is a, two other episodes that we went over talking about deconstruction, reconstruction, and looking at some, you know, movements of reconstruction or deconstruction and how emotionally we go through all of, uh, all of those emotions. And I've done some reading this week, just discovering and looking at uh, the idea of deconstruction and how deconstruction is considered right now, which I didn't know. Uh, it's amazing how like all a bunch of people are talking about it all at once, but I guess it's a I guess it's a fad. You know, some people are calling it a fad to deconstruct your faith is a fad. It's kind of trendy to do right now. And I had to ask the question why, because there's also statistics out there that say younger people are actually starting to read their Bibles, that they're actually looking for a deep dive into, uh, into scripture. And back when I was first in ministry and exploring, okay, how do I, how do I, you know, preach the Bible and how do I get people to read the Bible? There was a trend, a statistic out there that people didn't read the Bible. They actually considered it a biblical illiteracy where the Bible people were not literate in scripture. And so when thinking about tonight and this broadcast uh, and just covering this just a little bit, I just want to throw this out to you. Um, I believe that people have worshiped the Bible and haven't read the Bible. Because when we worship the Bible, we don't really read it. We just kind of are enamored by it. And we don't look at the bruises and the warts of it. But when we read it, we look at the rawness of it. We look at, you know, difficult topics in it. I just believe there's a difference between reading the Bible and worshiping the Bible. And if deconstruction is a trend right now, it's obvious from some of the podcasts I listen to and some of the theologians that are writing right now that people are starting to go into a deeper dive when it comes to scripture. And, and as you take a deeper dive into scripture, you have to wrestle with some things, right? I mean, honestly, yeah. <laughs> if you look at this story of Exodus you have to reconcile in your head that God killed an Egyptian army in water, drowned them in water. I mean, there's so many things in scripture. I don't know if you guys have any other, like any other um, scriptures that you've read or stories that you can talk about tonight when it comes to these stories are in the Bible. They're real and we have to wrestle with them. And once we start to wrestle with them, they don't no longer are a flannel graph at Sunday school. They're no longer a, you know, vet, like I don't want to use certain uh, company getting, names. Getting drunk and naked in a cave doesn't go well on flannel graphs. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Or some cartoon, like vegetable cartoon. It doesn't, or, it doesn't fare very well <laughs> on some all, things. And so just talk about that. Killed. Yeah. Just talk about that for a second. Like we have to reconcile some things here when it comes to, we're actually reading the Bible and taking it for what the Bible is doing and saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, like a lot of us who grew up in Sunday school were taught moral lessons. You know, the story of the, the loaves and the fishes is about sharing so make sure you share with your brother or sister. 
It's not about the poverty. End. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when, when you actually read the stories and you start to see the depth and the nuance and learn more about other cultures and languages and things, then the moral lessons aren't necessarily the most important thing anymore. Yeah. So, so like the book of Job, I just finished the book of Job, right? And this conversation between God and Satan, right? The Satan is like put on commission to go mm -hmm. wipe out Job and see if he can, you know, basically make him turn whittle him down. against God, just whittle him down. So, right. Like that's the first chapter. How do we just blow past that? <laughs> <laughs> and then the end of the story is, Okay, so since Job made it, you know, he passed the fiery test. Now he gets twice as much as he had before. I mean, that just sounds really quite extra kids to replace the ones he lost. Right. And a bunch of no, bunch no more money. There. No emotion. So I don't know. I just there's some stories in the Bible that I think we need to I process. That, there's lots of stories in the Bible. Every every book is full of them. And as as readers of, of the Bible, um, there's a there's a word out there called anachronism. Mm -hmm. And when whenever you read a passage, take yourself out of where you are at today and do your mm -hmm. best to put yourself in the time of writing or remembering the story. Mm -hmm. And so Anachronism is placing today's standards on, on old concepts or old ideas or old like theologies or thoughts or whatever it may be. And so like we'll get into some discussion on probably Hammurabi's code and eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth um, that predates the Torah. Yeah. But we can't, it, it would not be fair to try to put that in context of our judicial system that makes sense totally mm -hmm. totally so taking old codes and laws and just imposing them on us we have to look at cultural context and and the nuance behind what is being said that happens when we read the bible when we actually read the words and actually hear what they're saying we have to wrestle with some of these things I mean, uh, just Rod in Genesis, you have, uh, you have the person of Noah who at the end of his very um, glorious journey in an ark, let's just skip over the mass genocide over all of humanity, right, right. gets drunk in the cave and curses his son because yeah. his son sees him naked and most old school theologians will say that that is the start of different skin colors. Mm. So you have, people have tried to do things with passages that have been very, very scary. Go ahead, Kevin. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, Rob, uh, we have a listener, Rob, after listening to Exodus for Normal People, which is a podcast I've come to realize that each part in Exodus is supposed to be symbolic of something. And we're going to get into that here really soon because it is symbolic of something. And we have to um, take that symbolism and it's very easy to apply that to our lives, especially this communal literature of Exodus. I think that it's, there's so much here um, just in these first couple of chapters. So it starts out, let's just get into it. It starts out a, uh, in Exodus 1, we see the story of Joseph and how the Israelite people actually ended up in Egypt and actually starts before that, doesn't it? Where Abraham kind of checks things out in Egypt way before, right? Correct. And then we have, uh, we have some interesting encounters with Sarah and Pharaoh and and some other kind of weird stories in there. Can't flannelgraph well. that one either. Yeah, I can't flannelgraph yep. that that relationship. But basically, Sarah takes up house in Pharaoh's place, and Abraham gets rich, 
And then we end up getting kicked out of Egypt because he lied because it was his sister. It wasn't his sister as it was his wife. Go back and read the story. I mean, it's just he, really. He, he, he pimped out his wife, not his sister. And that's, that's basically. Yeah. And lied and said it was his sister. Right. And then Pharaoh found out and then, but he kicks him out of Egypt. Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt and he's still wealthy. So he took all of the, the bounty that he had acquired all the cattle, gold and silver, it says, and then he gets kicked out into where Midian and he ends up gave him more. Uh, and yeah, and little foreshadowing. Up, yeah. yeah, little foreshadowing of, of Exodus there in Abraham's story. But the chapter one starts out with uh, Joseph and how the Israelite people basically got to got to Egypt. And um, if you want to go back specifically, let's work through some Hebrew because I think that's important um, because we're going to tie all this together with a creation narrative. If what Rob said is true, that each section is a symbol of something else, which I think is one true, it is true, but let's just say that Rob has a hypothesis that, that the hypothesis is that the sections are symbolic of something else. What is that symbolism? And we have to discover what that is. And so uh, the idea of in Genesis, um, well, back up, Genesis 15, we see 70 people. Um, these 70 people actually end up in a, quote, slavery, or they end up in um, over time in slavery, but they show up with 70 people. Now here's props to those who believe in the plausibility of the historicity of Exodus, where, uh, the idea of 70 is a symbolic number and numbers in scripture are symbolic. You guys can name a few others really quick. It's not coming to me right now. What? Three, 40, 12, and, and some of the ages in scripture, <clears throat> 777. And a derivative of 10, oh. 7, mm -hmm. 3, yeah. or 12. 12 tribes of Israel means something. 3 means something. Um, these are all numbers of wholeness. And 70 is cannot be considered literal. And so a whole number of people ended up in Egypt, a perfect number or a complete number. And that number could be a lot greater than 70, could have been smaller than 70. I propose that it was probably greater if we look at the plausibility of this happening, because at the exodus, at the exit of Egypt, we see there's 600,000 just males and that biologically you would 400 years prior would have had to start at a bigger number in the first place, but that's an unreconciled. I didn't live back then. I didn't, I, I didn't see it. So it's kind of hard to say that that's, you know, 70 or a hundred thousand, however many started the journey or started, started in Egypt. So we have this 70, but then continuing on in, uh, if you look at Exodus um, and pull up Exodus 1-7, Jake, if you could, Exodus 1-7 is an important passage. And this is where there's a symbolic idea, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So verse seven, if you look over at the Hebrew uh, for fruitful, you want to click on that for me? You know, look at a Strong's concordance here. There we go. So if you have your glasses, you can read that. Um, so to, there we go. Thank you for the old folk. <laughs> so to bear fruit, right? To be fruitful, this idea of fruitfulness means basically the uh, fruit bearers or be fruitful and multiply. I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you, but you can go back to Genesis one twenty eight, and you can see be fruitful and multiply. So there's, there's fill the earth and then it also says subdue it. 
um, in Genesis. So this means a swarming or teeming with life, be fruitful and, and multiply. There we go. Is that Genesis 120? Yeah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and rule over, rule over everything. So this creation narrative is set up, isn't it? One, Sheree, you take a couple of seconds and uh, kind of explicate that. Like, how did we see that last week with the creation narrative with Exodus? Well, that started with um, water and the idea of um, at creation, the the land splitting the sea. Um, you even have the the dome of the earth splitting the waters of the heavens from the waters from from the earth um we have that in exodus where the um israelites are saved crossing through uh dry land and then um again further on in their history um crossing into the jordan um so lots of lots of retellings of the creation story throughout their history even the even the uh Moses being put into water mm -hmm. and Moses then drawn out brought out of water and said and is called beautiful yeah which we'll get to later probably right yeah and uh and also I was thinking all the plagues of Egypt are considered like the the chaos or the God is just looking over the the mass or the chaos and then brings order to the chaos so and a lot of plagues <laughs> had to do with water right so we we have this notion that exodus is a recreation story so rob is correct in saying that the idea of symbolism uh probably lands somewhere in the creation narrative itself or the recreation narrative and we're going to later on kind of pick that apart and see where those lie in chapters one and two. But before that, I mean, I just want to talk a little bit about the women that save Israel, because this is a really important uh, topic. There's a lot of people who think that the Bible, because it was written or proposed to be written, I mean, I think the book of Hebrews was written by a female. Um, but a lot of the Bible written by males with a lot of male overtones, um, a lot of male dominance, a lot of male violence, um, a lot of male uh, centric ideas. Let's just put it that way, male centric ideas. Uh, yet in the book of Exodus, the women actually save Israel. And that brings a entire different um, nuance and, and like message uh, that the Israelite people were matriarchal and there's more of a female-centric idea to, to Exodus. So Shreya, why don't you uh, take a couple of minutes? Let's, let's talk about, help me with my male dominance, help me with my male centricism when it comes to scripture because I don't want anyone that identifies as female, I don't want anyone that identifies as female to just discount all of scripture because it is, is there a way to not discount scripture because it's male-centric? I think so. Yeah. I think it's, it's looking for those subversive things that make it into the narrative. Um, my favorite thing about this is that Pharaoh doesn't get a name. And in other parts of the Bible, we know that the Israelites did not have a problem naming their enemies. But in this case, Pharaoh doesn't have a name. But these two Israelite midwives are named. Mm. Like, they're important. They matter. Right. Yeah, and it was the midwives who lied. I mean, they're the ones yep. who were crafty enough to to lie and okay so here's another character yep. issue here <laughs> it's like now <clears throat> god is ordaining lies <laughs> and so 
so uh, we know that just right out of some of Peter N's work that marginalized people do what they have to do. And we would do the same. We would lie to save our children. You know, we would lie to save anyone else's children too. If it meant death or, or life, we would try to protect them. And, and this has happened all through history. You think about, you think about uh, some of the homes in Germany and the Netherlands and some parts of even Eastern Europe where they would hide Jews and lie to uh, SS and to the Nazis that, that, you know, they were not protecting anyone. They would hide people. And so you would, you know, all through history, even modern history, we lie to protect our children. We lie to protect our friends. So marginalized people though, and especially in history, old history, antiquity, we know that they were pretty crafty. They, they did what they had you to do. You have to be. Yeah. Right. Right. So we Keep have this. Yeah, go ahead. Can I go back to the, the, I think we need to hit it harder that the, the prominence of women saving Israel Mm-hmm. That is a main motif that goes all the way to the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. And that the women save the next generation. And so you have, yes. um, gosh, just starting At out the, with. Well, are we talking started, about resurrection or Exodus? No, I'm talking Genesis. And if you go back to Genesis and you see the craftiness of gosh i need to stay up on this but jacob and and esau and rebecca his, thank you his mom right. rebecca mm-hmm. and her cunningness and creativity to pass it on correctly and then you have i mean if you go back to sarah and abraham sarah sarah is doing her best to to create the next generation of of israelites you go into um, Jesus is a descendant from two women mm-hmm. and they specifically put them out there for um, help me out. Sorry, I'm Mir- not Miriam. Um, Mar. She calls herself Mar. Ruth. Uh, Ruth. Yeah. Yeah. Ruth and <laughs> the sweet water, but she calls herself Mar later. Naomi. And Naomi. Thank you. <laughs> and then you have, um, the Shreza, women, biblical scholar obviously right? the women judges that led armies to yep. to the yeah. greatest victories that that israel known has um and then all the way to to the resurrection of jesus where women are the the first evangelists and so had mm-hmm. they not have been witness to that we would not be here today Well, I have outlined for us that you have the midwives and their craftiness. So that is a display of strength that is not shown as a male trait in this story. So all through the story of Exodus, we see the craftiness of female people uh, saving all along the way, the Israelite people, because even though, so the midwives saved the first round that the midwives basically save the first round of the firstborn, they're not killed, but the second round they're killed except well, supposedly, supposedly killed. And the second round only Moses survives, but Pharaoh's daughter for Moses's mother puts him in a basket, floats down the river. Pharaoh's daughter saves Moses. So now we have the enemy's daughter or the enemy's side, female side. Now in her craftiness is saving all of, all of Israel. So I think that there's an importance just in the book of Exodus that we see that the, the female story in the book of Exodus is quite profound that I think is overlooked. It is overlooked. When you have Miriam watching over Moses as he's being drawn out of the water too. Right. Right. So there's just nuances of person after person. 
So I think it's a disservice to scripture to not look at the thread, the motif of female leadership and female, uh, the female um, writing and the importance of that in scripture. I think that it's a disservice to scripture. And I think now, because we've been so male centric and have just focused on just Moses as Moses alone, right? That uh, now we have a culture of that in modern yeah. time, which is super, well, it's, it's our time right now as such a time as this to turn the corner on that for sure in the church. So all the way, Jake, you're right, all the way to <clears throat> resurrection, story after story after story, all the way to resurrection, post-resurrection, which I'm excited to do a series through the summer, the women of the Bible, because we're going to talk about post-resurrection women um, in the Bible. And then we're going to spend a week, a weekend and a week on uh, the, just the saints of the church, because there was lots of women post Jesus's ascension, but really I'm in the several hundred years after we see scripture um, come to a close that we, we have women taking forth the, the torch and really leading, um, leading out. So women are the heroes, I think, in the book of Exodus. And I'm not just saying that to give props. I'm, I'm actually saying that that is true, that, uh, that even the enemy's women are the heroes as well in this. And that's mm -hmm. not by accident that that's written in ancient scripture. That's not by accident. So, well, let's, uh, let's move into Moses and his birth. So we see that Moses is born. We're going to work through a little Hebrew here as well. Um, this idea of, uh, we have this woman that she, conceived a fine a fine baby which is really a strange way <laughs> to describe a child that actually means beautiful and so i'm trying to there's three different ways to interpret this word for fine it is the word tov and tov can be a moral Goodness. So, but babies really, I mean, yes, babies, I believe babies at an early age can make poor decisions, but babies are, you know, pretty fresh and cute and beautiful in and of themselves, no matter who they are. And so to put a morality tove that the baby Moses was a good moral baby, that's really weird, you know, to say, uh, to say that he kind of had a good, you know, good lot in life. Um, that's, that's not true. Cause he was almost killed and put in a river and, or put in the water and floated down and pulled out of the water and almost died. And so good lot in life is probably not it. So <clears throat> this idea that Moses was a beautiful baby versus ugly. So that you, yeah, that's your only other choice that either <laughs> Moses is beautiful or Moses was ugly. And I don't know why that's in scripture besides to pull us back to Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 says that God created everything, even human beings, and called them tov, called them good, as the Bible translates, it's good, and I would make the case that it is this tov, fine-looking or beautiful, like a total Pleasing. judgment call, pleasing to the eye, this poor baby, just judgment call. I mean, if it was ugly, would it be saved? I mean, we're going to pull it. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, well, it's a fine looking baby. So we'll save this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So another Hebrew word that we see that pulls us back to Genesis. Uh, why don't you take this next one, Sharia, since you're the Hebrew scholar, because I'm a little, I'm a little weak on on this next word, the Tava. Tava? Is this yeah. the ark? Yes. <laughs> this is the ark. Yeah. The basket Moses gets put in. It's an ark. So it's not this a basket. Is, um, uh, uh, is, is an ark a basket? I mean, it could be, but it's an ark. 
Yeah, so it's named an arc. Yeah, and an arc yeah. had and an arc had like tar on the inside and stuff. Yeah, you got to waterproof it. Arcment was just floatable. Right, but it's the same word, isn't it? The same word that's yes. used in Genesis for Noah's ark. Yes. So we have. So, so go ahead. Sorry. Well, we've moved out of the creation story, and then our next big story is the story of Noah. Yeah, another recreation story. And then if Exodus <laughs> is a recreation story, it's hearkening back to a recreation story in Genesis. So this Tava basically is the ark. And any Hebrew reader that would have read that, they would have read ark. They would have known that tie together. So just knowing the Hebrew um there's that Hebrew word is found nowhere else. That's a, that's what actually ties it together mm -hmm. because there's no other Hebrew word Tava um, used in scripture besides Noah and besides Moses. Yep. And so this is then a symbolic way of, of looking at um, looking at recreation again. You guys have any other thoughts about that? Besides just Noah being in a basket. What do you mean? Does that. On a I mean, basket with all the animals. Yeah. Oh. All the, the animal <laughs> basket. The animal basket. Yeah. I, it is. We are digging deep, especially into, into Hebrew words that could definitely. I was joking with Kevin today that I don't know why the Bible for everybody, this is a pretty heady book. And so I yeah, don't it's know. a book that sure I recommended the Bible for no, normal that's the people. That's the one, one we're going through, right? Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the one that sure I recommended in our yeah. first podcast. It's called Exodus yes. for normal people, which is a commentary on the book of Exodus by Peter ends. And this is just one take on the book of Exodus, but uh, yeah. It's a heady book. And so the nuances that like the wicker basket being an ark or a tove being beautiful um, just brings some life to the story that we oftentimes miss. Yeah. Like that's, this is the first time I've ever heard that this basket is an ark. Yeah, and sometimes our English translations aren't consistent with those words, so we miss those things because we're not reading in the original Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to. Well, yeah, it's it's a difficult <laughs> language to grasp and get your head around, but it sure does bring picture art to the page. You can see the literature in picture versus just you know words. And our versus flannel graph. Yeah, yeah, totally. Our words are very, um, I don't know what you call it, just just very uh, linear and very two-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. They just mean one thing. So uh, nighttime <laughs> means pretty much one thing. I mean, we have some words that mean multiple meanings, but nighttime pretty much means nighttime. So we're broadcasting this at night, right? But in Hebrew, night could mean lots of things. It could mean night. It could mean the opposite of light. It could mean darkness. It could mean the deep. It could mean Sheol. So, I mean, it could mean every, like all different kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I know, right? Yeah. Podcasting to you live from Sheol. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, so there's a lot of good, uh, there's a lot of good, um, important things to learn from Hebrew. There's another case that Moses, uh, last week or the week before in our previous broadcast, we talked about Moses being an Egyptian name. Can we pause there, a moment? Yeah, uh, Rob, Rob asked another question. Yeah. Is, is Ark anywhere else? Rob, those, that word Ark is only used in the Noahic story and this story in Moses and nowhere else in scripture where there is a Hebrew word for basket, 
And there is a Hebrew word for boat and a Hebrew word for probably a floatable log. But here we have ark. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Kevin. No, don't be sorry. It's good. Answering questions is always good. Well, let's go into Moses's name because Moses and his name, uh, I think has been kind of a confusion where some people believe that it's a Hebrew like transliteration or even a mistake from Hebrew uh, mispronunciation from Hebrew, let's say, uh, borrowing from something else. And some people say that it's more Egyptian. It does have Egyptian nuance to it. I would say that the case for Moses's name being Egyptian is really not the name itself. It's who gave it to him. And so, so the, the household of Pharaoh basically gave Moses the name and they wouldn't have known Hebrew nuance. <laughs> so that's a difficult bridge to cross. Um, but some people make the case that Moses is a Hebrew name that comes from to draw out and that's Masha. So you have Moshe, which is Moses in uh, in the original language. And then you have Masha, which is Hebrew for to draw out. So to draw out of what? To draw out of water, to draw out of Egypt, to, to draw out of, I mean, it could be all kinds of things. So we, this is penned in exile. It could have been hearkened back. Who knows? Let's just name this person to draw out of Egypt. And there's lots of cases. There's lots of, um, lots. Well, of that's what, that's what Pharaoh's daughter says. What? That I drew him out of the river. That's right. Moses. Right. Pharaoh's daughter uses the Hebrew. Yeah, so that's a problem. Right. So I would I would still make the case that uh make the case that uh Moses is Egyptian and it's a shortened version of something. It makes sense. I mean, goodness, you know, Moses would have known the book of the dead, he would have known Egyptian folklore and and would have known egyptian quote theology he would have known all kinds of egyptian ideas and so being raised in an egyptian home he would have been through and through egyptian so he wouldn't have carried a hebrew name in an egyptian household so that's pretty hard case to make that he actually had a a uh, a hebrew name so I love what uh, some people have said that, that they compare Moshe to Masha. Moshe would be like saying um, cup versus cap, like a mispronunciation of cup versus like you meant to say cap instead of cup or Sandy instead of Sunday, you know, a change of one letter. Uh, I, I don't necessarily buy that because they call that folk entomology that you just really can't make a case for that that's just guessing all right so let's talk about something difficult the name of moses wasn't something? difficult the name of moses wasn't <laughs> difficult so the book of exodus and this is oh, this is difficult for me to wrap my head around long time ago uh, pastor jake and i were in southern california and we were attending a conference uh uh by uh uh, Jürgen Moltmann, his name was, he was a German theologian from Tübingen University in Germany. And so he, you know, spoke in very in, in, in depth and breadth. I mean, his, his mind went to totally different places than my mind ever thought about being in. And Jürgen Moltmann is a famous uh, theologian out of World War II. And uh, he actually was a Nazi soldier, ended up in a YMCA war camp captured there and converted to Christ and then came out of that war camp, denounced the Nazi regime. He refused to fight and that's why he was yeah. captured. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Refused to fight. Actually was at the gates of a, of a uh, concentration camp, saw actually what was going on and ran. Nope. And totally. Nope. I'm not going to do this. So I ended up in this YMCA war camp because the YMCA used to have prisoner war camps. Um, in Germany and, and, and surrounding areas, and they would uh, take care of them, introduce them to Christ and feed them and give them shelter and stuff. So this Jürgen Moltmann was teaching in this 
class at Claremont College in Southern California. And one of the students, you know, raises their hand and says, what do you do with the Ten Commandments and Moses and Mount Sinai? Because that is a direct copy of the Book of the Dead. And I, I had never heard that before. <laughs> and so I was shocked. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do with that information. I thought I was like dumb. Like I, I never heard that before. Um, so of course, Pastor Jake and I ran out of that classroom and went and immediately bought the book of the dead and the Egyptian book of the dead and had to figure out what was this guy talking about? And was he even, was it even true? And, and just couldn't quite get my head around it. Well, Again, I'm faced with one of those things. And so I'd like you guys to help me through this. The book of Exodus, and especially the story of Moses, is an ex almost an exact, it's almost an exact retelling of the birth of King Sargon of Akkad. And this story of the birth of the King of, the, of Sargon of Akkad basically was around uh, 2300 um, BCE. And so this exact telling, like Moses, basically Sargon is born in secret. He's placed in a reed basket. He's, you know, closed in a lid, waterproof the basket with pitch and tar, kind of like the Teva, the Ark, basically floated down a river rescued by someone standing by the water and also raised in an adopted home as the adopted son. So the similarities are, in, are just completely like, okay, we have to, we have to reconcile this. So help me out here. How do I, how do I reconcile this? Yeah. So you're, you're an Israelite in, in exile in Babylon reading this story and you go, huh, this sounds, this sounds really familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, um, is it a copy? I mean, is it, what is it? I mean, well, dig deep with me here. I'm not well-versed on King Sargon, so I can't tell you if it's a copy. Um, but I can say that um, this is likely meant to show that Moses is a really great important guy kind of like King Sargon so maybe the hero's journey like we talked about last week it could have been a form of literature yeah to tell well it is right yeah right um a lot of cultures have similar stories between great leaders or gods or other mythical features um, as a way of saying, hey, this guy is just as good as this other guy. Yeah. I had the, to really gut some things out here. Jake, what, what were you going to say? The Egyptian, uh, the Israelite people, the Hebrew people were great borrowers. And a lot of theologians and researchers will call them like literary borrowers. And so you read the book of Genesis, and in there is a character named Moses, or not Moses, Noah, forgive me, <laughs> on an ark, 40 days, or a perfect amount of time, lands, and goes off, plants his vineyard. You go into the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh descends into some weird place, meets a person named Utnapishtim, and Utnapishtim saved humanity by building a boat, by taking animals onto his boat with him, and getting to the other side of this, this storm. Um, even China has a flood story that's very similar to, to the book of, of Genesis' account to now, people will say that's because it's so old and it predates the Hebrew people that everyone has their, their narrative of it. Um, but where the, if we say this is penned in exile, where the Hebrew people would be at 
would be a kind of a, a melting pot of stories, of information, of like lots of cultures were dominated and brought to to Mesopotamia, to Babylon, to uh, Syria. And so it's only fair to think when retelling the history of the world, history of their people, that they would incorporate other great writings, other great like codes. You can see like, like uh, murmurs of Hammurabi's code in in God's code. You see murmurs of the book of the dead in the 10 commandments. And Job right. is, is a character of the book of the dead. So these are, these are great borrowed stories that, that as we said in the first podcast or broadcast we say that the point is greater than the historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. So what point are we making? I, I take with Moses' name, I take the view that that it, it could be Egyptian, but it sounds better to be Hebrew because of the because of the the narrative and the the metaphor that it follows. Yeah. And so both are fine. But you like the Hebrew version better. It's a better story. Right. Well, so we disagree on that point. It's fine. That's okay. That's it's fine. okay. So when I was gutting this out, kind of doing some battle with, you know, wrestling with God a little bit on this, I had to come to the conclusion that most of the Old Testament, uh, give me the Shema. Hero of Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yeah. So it seems to me that the Old Testament, one of the main themes of the Old Testament is the I am, that God, mm-hmm. our Yahweh, Yahweh is greater than any other God. Our, our Yahweh is the best, right? And so even a retelling, like even if the author of the are the authors of the book of Exodus took different pieces and nuances of history and put it together and wrote this literary uh, sacred story. Um, It just shows something to me that again, they are showing that the main point Yahweh is greater than any other God, but also in this specific story and compared to the other stories, even the other flood stories or the other, other, um, Exodus, Exodus stories or recreation narratives that are out there that it it's this story specifically lands on this application that God keeps his promises, that God keeps his promises. He promised Abraham that Abraham would be this leader of a great nation and like the stars in the sky and countless pieces of sand and whatever, you know, like you can metaphorically say about the number of people that were going to be under the uh, leadership and also the birthright of Abraham and that promise that God was going to fulfill that no matter what, that God was promising that he was going to fulfill what he was going to fulfill. So there is a strength, I think, in communal literature. There's a strength in in this story that goes beyond the history of the story. It goes beyond some arc, like a, like a thing that you can dig up in the ground and see the Israelite people were in Egypt. At this point, I look at this story and go, you know, there is so much a bigger point to make that God keeps his promises. And this story is going to hold that truth together for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's the power of this communal story, the power of this communal uh, literature. There's lots of things that we need to reconcile through the book of Exodus. There's lots of things that we need to fight through in the book of Exodus. I think I had to wrestle through this week of this story of, of, uh, of the king of, of Sargon of, 
of a, a cod, I was just like, what in the world? You know, like, here's another one of those things faced in my, you know, just slapped in my face. But again, the power of communal literature, the power of story, in the end, we see the promise and the affirmation that God will keep his promises. I think that's the application for our lives, that God keeps his promises no matter what. You guys have any concluding thoughts? Because we are pretty much done. Trey, you want to go first? Uh, no. Okay. I'll, I'll talk a little bit and you can formulate. <laughs> um, I liked, Kevin, that you brought up the Shema and the the idea of a communal literature that we're talking about. And if we put the community of writing into Babylon or Assyria, this ancient like melting pot of culture and throughout all of Genesis and uh, some parts of Exodus, you have all these names for God. You have El, El Shaddai, you have the Shekinah, you have uh, Elohim, you have Yahweh, you have lots of names that, that God was carrying. And um, Reza Aslan, who wrote God, a Human History, put, put a, a thought forward that what the writer is saying is he's taking, or the writer's taking all of these names for God that he was in, or sorry, they were in, forgive me, in relationship to and saying all of these gods this is god god is one and this is the story of god being faithful to god's promises and we're going back and we are being led out again to recreate what we can be any concluding thoughts? Um, one of the things that we have under application that we only touched on a little bit was um, do we allow God killing the Egyptians coming up to be unreconciled? Like how do we how do we um, sit with a God who who destroys? Um, and what I thought about as I was reading and preparing today is um, the the practice that we have in um, Passover, that we have the cup of celebration um, and we take a finger and remove each of the plagues, a drop of wine from the cup, including the, including the death of the firstborn um and the reason we do that is that number one we acknowledge and hold space for that suffering um we don't pretend it didn't happen we don't gloat um but we also remove it from the celebration it's not something that we celebrate um and i just like that those two things can exist at the same time and i think that's how we move forward when we encounter these stories where God behaves in ways that are uncomfortable. Right. right. So whether it be life or death, disease or health, famine or food, rich or poor, love or loveless, together or alone I think about all those opposites the night of Sheol the day of the spirit <laughs> whatever it is uh, no matter what and no matter what we think of these situations no matter if we question God's behavior God keeps his promises and that's the story of Exodus and that's the point and that's the reason why God delivered the Israelite people and that God delivers us as he keeps his promises, those promises fulfilled in our hearts as well. Well, we made it to an hour uh, or more. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, more. 
So uh, thanks everybody for listening to this broadcast and we are going to make our best attempt every Thursday night at 8.30 to join you. And so we'll build traction with this. And again, this will be brought rebroadcasted on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock uh, in the morning uh, in, in lieu of our, our traditional uh, uh, coming together gathering in person. You can listen to this online on Sunday morning. So thanks you two, uh, Shreya and Jake, for joining us today and giving some very good insight tonight on the subject of Exodus 1 and 2. We'll see you next week. Same place, same time. Good night. Bye,